If you are wasting away following this distraction or that distraction over there, either your faith will wane and you will be useless and spiritually starving, or you will prove to yourself and to others that you have not yet had true faith in Christ to begin with and still have the opportunity to repent and give your life to Christ. Our big idea tonight is that God's specific purpose for your life, so I'm not just talking about the general call as a Christian, but each person here in this room has a specific calling from God, and it is fulfilled in the pursuit of holiness. Our passage tonight uh, can't be taught, I think, um, just in isolation, 20 through 26. I I think in order to give it... uh, Justice, it, it needs to have the context of verse 14. So what we're going to do is we're going to read from, we're going to read verse 14 to 19 together, and then 20 to 21, and then 22 to 26. Uh, so we'll read it in just those little paragraphs, just so we can kind of see Paul's flow of thought uh, before we break down the text. So verses 14 through 19, hopefully you have Second Second Timothy chapter 2 in front of you. It says this, Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Paul is contrasting the faithful ministry of Timothy and the the, the ministry that Timothy is supposed to have at the church in Ephesus against false teachers. He's pointing out false teachers. He's calling them out by name, and he's saying they have swerved from the truth. Do not be like them. Instead, right, verse 14, don't quarrel about about words. Don't get into dumb arguments, but present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So there are two truths here that Paul is commending to Timothy, and he says, make sure that your doctrine is right, that what you're saying about God is true and it's coming from his word. You're not just making it up or hearing it randomly and and, and start and be, oh, you're like, oh, that sounds nice and telling that to other people. Make sure your doctrine is correct and make sure your morals are correct. And you make sure you're saying the right things and you're doing the right things. Why? Uh, because those who don't have swerved from the truth. They're upsetting the faith of some. This is in the context of the church. Um, and because he ends verse 19 by saying, let everyone who names the, Lord, the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So that's the transition to, to verse 20. Depart from iniquity. He's saying, if you claim the name of the Lord, if you, if you say, I'm a Christian, I, I follow the Lord Jesus Christ, he's changed my life, I want to honor him, depart from iniquity. And then he gives us an illustration. What does it look like to depart from iniquity? So let's read verses 20 through 21. Uh, this is an illustration. It's just a picture. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, 
some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. In this illustration, it's supporting Paul's call to depart from iniquity, and it's also a promise of blessing in the pursuit of holiness, where he says, be set apart as holy. That's what holy means. It's it's redundant. Be set apart to be set apart. Set yourself apart from the works of the world and the sinful desires of the flesh and devote yourself to the Lord. Fulfill your calling. He says, Back in there's there's these comforting words in verse 19 that says the Lord knows those who are His. If you are His, He knows you. He knows everything about you. He He knows everything that you need. He knows every responsibility that you need to fulfill. And as you are working out your responsibilities, as you are honoring the Lord with your life, you will you will fulfill your calling. It's it's not it's not a question. Then he moves from this example of vessels in the house. We're gonna, I'm going to explain the example a little bit more if you're confused. I've, I've been confused by this all week. But it, it is a confusing example that he gives, um, for us at least. Then in verse 22, he, ta- he unpacks the same truth that he talked about in verse 14. So what, what were the two things that we said we need to have? We need to have right doctrine and right morals, right character. He says this in verse 22. So flee youthful passions... And pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. When I first read this passage, uh, I saw the phrase, uh, escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And I was like, whoa, that sounds like a really weird, crazy verse. It's not. That's actually one of the most simple verses in the passage. 20 through 21 uh, is this illustration uh, is what has caused me the uh, the most uh, area for study. And uh, we're going to look at it. We're going to start there tonight. But uh, what we're going to look at is verses 20 through 26 in three parts. We're going to start with this illustration, and it's called the illustration of aspiration. The illustration of aspiration. So this is what Paul is giving as a goal for all Christians to attain. Your aspiration as a believer should be to fulfill this illustration. So he paints a picture. He says, it's like a great house. It's the Lord's house. And in a great house, there are different, a vessel is like a cup or a bowl or something that you use to carry something else, or you use it as a, as a tool. It's like a pitcher. It has a purpose. There are, there are tools made out of clay and wood. There are vessels made out of gold and silver. And they are very different in their use and their quality. So a vessel that's for gold and silver has been set aside for honorable use, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't use a, a, you wouldn't turn your, all of your gold and your household wealth and turn it into a toilet, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't take the finest 
piece of your house, whatever whatever the the, the nicest part of your house is, uh, and say, oh, this is where uh, we keep the litter box for our cat so that they can use the restroom, right? That's that's where you, you use wood and clay. In those days, these were cheap materials that you could build anything out of. But Paul is saying that, that now all illustrations break down at some point. He's not saying base your, your entire faith and build your religion out of these two verses. If you do, you're going to run into all kinds of problems. Where, where he's using this illustration to point us is to say, desire to be an honorable vessel of the Lord. Right, I the diff, this difficult question that I've I've wrestled with uh, all all week uh, is the question of what does it mean to be of dishonorable use? So I think it's it's clear, and, and we're going to talk. He explains more about what it means to be used for honorable use. What does it mean to be dishonorable use? And honestly, I I, I don't know whether he's referring to Christians who are weak in the faith, those who have lost uh, the the lost their their sense of relationship with the Lord, uh, those who are believers but are, yeah, they're, they're weak in faith, they're deflated like the bike tires we were talking about earlier, um, or maybe it means that they are unbelievers, unfit and unable to honor God. Um, I've racked my brain over this, I've exhausted my available resources of commentaries, but one thing that this study of honorable and dishonorable use has shown me for certain is that you don't want to be at all associated with the wood and clay that is set aside for dishonorable use. To be holy, to be set apart for God's honorable use is not only your goal in life, but it is your specific calling. This is what God has given for you to do. He says, I want you to be my vessel. I want to use you to, to glorify and honor my name. And as you do that, you are, you will, you will, if you're looking for a sense of fulfillment, if you're like, what am I here on this earth for? It is to honor the Lord with your life. And, and it is your purpose. Now, how do we live that out though? Uh, we have to take part in uh, what I see in verses 22 and 23 as a stampede of holiness. Join the stampede of holiness. He says, let's read verse 22 and 23 together. He says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord for a pure, from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So he says here first, he gives a command. He says, so, it's a connecting word. All right, so because you want to be an honorable vessel, ready for every good work. If you want, if you want to be, this to be true of you, flee youthful passions. Passions here in this context, it refers to sinful desires in general, not just sexual desires. Uh, we talked about this with the idea of purity as well. Purity does not just mean to be sexually pure. It means to be of one mind. You're not divided. You're not trying to serve God and your own desires at the same time. You are purely serving God because he is your desire. It's not like saying, uh, I, I have to cut off all the fun and the joy in my life in order to serve God. It's saying, I find all the joy in my life in God. So when he says, turn away from youthful passions, he's saying the sinful desires of your flesh. We're all human. We're all in the flesh. We all have sinful desires. Every single person here, you might your desires might be different 
from somebody else, right? I know there are people here who struggle with pornography. There are people who struggle with alcohol. There are people who struggle with drugs. There are people who struggle with sex, sexual problems. There are, are uh, promiscuity. There's all kinds of different things that your sinful flesh will desire and will tell you this is what's right or this is what I want to do. This is what's natural. And what Paul says is, no, flee those things. We get the picture uh, in Genesis of, of Joseph, young Joseph, who's in the clutches of his, his boss's wife, and she says, lie with me. And she has him by the robe, right? And he, and he, he doesn't say, like, finally, right? What does he do? He runs out of the house, and she has his garment in his hand, so he runs out naked, and he just he's booking it because... It, the Bible doesn't say stand and fight against sin. It says run away from it because your desires will be to fulfill that. Get away from it. Flee youthful passions. You Flee, run away from the things that, that say that you're serving yourself. And he never, there's never a period in Scripture. We've seen this countless times here at College Group. It never says stop sinning, period. It says, flee sin and pursue righteousness and pursue faith, pursue love, pursue peace. So repentance, turning from sin, is always a turning to Christ. All of these virtues are things that are ultimately fulfilled and greatly magnified in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He, he doesn't say here... Uh, Pursue like righteousness uh, and just be as righteous as you can. Pursue faith. Believe in God as, as much as you can. Pursue love. Like just be, just love everybody, man. Why can't we just love everybody? He's, he, he's pointing us to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The command to flee what is wrong is always combined with the command to pursue what is right. The pursuit of what is right is not to be done alone, but along with other believers. This is why we call this a stampede of holiness, because he says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with who? Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Christianity is not a solo mode. You, you, you are not alone in your faith. It is essential for both progress in sanctification and perseverance in your faith, right? This, this is why we, I'm calling this a stampede of holiness because he's saying run, pursue righteousness with the believers. We should be like those, um, not bison, what are those water buffaloes in, uh, in Lion King? Not, not to run over Simba's dad, but we should just be stampeding together. Aren't they water buffalo? Wildebeest, dang. Okay, we should be like a horde of wildebeests just stampeding towards righteousness and faith and love and peace together, right? You do not try and flee sin and pursue holiness alone. You do not try and fulfill God's calling on your life to be a part of his body, the church, by amputating yourself from the rest of the body. You don't say, I'm God's hand. I'm going to go and I'm going to work and I'm going to honor God with my life, and I'm going to do so much good for him, like away from it, away from the body. I, I can do it better on my own. It doesn't work that way. There's no lone wolf Christians. I've heard it said that uh, in answer to the question, 
uh, can can you be a can you can a believer not be part of a church? Uh, and the answer is yes, but not for long, because if you are a believer, you you will you will, you not only will you want to be with other believers, but you need to be with other believers because we're spiritually drained and sapped when we and and, and we start to turn to legalism and and or maybe we we fail morally and we put all the blame on our, on ourselves and we say, I'm just not righteous enough. I don't have enough peace. I don't have enough love. I don't have enough faith to do this. And we turn away from the Lord and we turn to pursue our passions. But we need one another to, to point each other to Christ. To, to remember, as you're stampeding, that we're all stampeding parallel. We're all going in the same direction. And when someone starts to wander off, we pull them back and we say, hey, whether, it, whether it's, it's calling out sin or listening to one another and being gracious and showing that if Christ can forgive me of my sin, I can forgive you for whatever wrong you've done to me. The pursuit of holiness is not done in isolation. It's always done with others. That's, that's what the church is. It's a bunch of moral wrecks, a bunch of sinners who have been saved by the grace of God and are helping one another by the grace of God to honor him with their lives. He goes on um, to, to combat uh, divisions in the church. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Have you seen the word quarrels before? We saw it uh, in verse 14 where he's saying, don't be like this. Don't be like Hymenius or Philetus, because by their quarreling, they're dividing the church. They're causing people to doubt their faith. We see the word quarrels a lot in the book of James as well, right? Our, our words, our tongues. Just this morning, uh, Dylan Riddell, he spoke on the book of, of James, and he was talking about um, the use of our tongues. And he said, you know, he kind of opened a little bit sarcastically at the beginning by saying, you know, I know none of us have a problem with our speech. None of us have a, have a problem about being, you know, we're, we're all kind with our words. We're always truthful. We never swear. We're always trying to build one another up, even when people are trying to cut us down. Right? Think about your your interaction. Usually, it's 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 almost always the worst with our our siblings or our our parents, people in our families. Right? It's it's very true that all of us fail when it comes to our speech, to our words. And so, what is what? How does Paul guard against division in the church? Is he says, watch your speech. Don't get involved in stupid arguments. Pursue holiness together. And then he gives us what I'm going to call the gospel of informed kindness. The gospel of informed kindness. Why informed kindness? We know what the gospel is. Why informed kindness? Because of the same two things that Paul was combating in the first few verses from verse 14. That your doctrine needs to be right and your moral compass needs to be right. Your character needs to be right. So we not only give the gospel in truth, but we give it in kindness, in gentleness. Every discussion about evangelism, when we talk about sharing, that's what evangelism is, right? It's sharing, proclaiming the good news. Every time we talk about evangelism, 
there must be two things held in, 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 in hand. One is the sovereignty of God, that he saves sinners. And number two is the responsibility of man, that we as believers have a responsibility to share the gospel. We see both of these things here. First, we're going to discuss God's sovereignty as it relates to salvation, bringing sinners to repentance. Let's, let's read uh, verses 24 to 26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So the first type of person that we're looking at here is are those who are blind, those who are lost, those who do not have a knowledge of the truth, as he says. They are captured by the devil. They have lost their senses and they are unrepentant. These are all things we see about these people here. And all that needs, all of that, all of, all of the, the, the fact that they don't have a knowledge of the truth, they're captured by the devil, they've lost their senses, it needs to be turned around. How does it get turned around? Verse 25 says, God may perhaps grant them repentance. It doesn't say, share the gospel, don't be quarrelsome, and maybe when they hear the gospel from you, they will repent. Or maybe when they hear the gospel in general, they will repent. It says, God may grant them repentance. What is repentance? It's a, it's a changing of the mind, a coming to, sense, to your senses with a knowledge of the truth. So God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So repentance leads to a change of mind in what you know. There are many people who know the truth of the gospel. They can recite it. They've heard it. They've read it. They can tell you the gospel is that you're a sinner and Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And they cannot see it for the glorious beauty that it is. Because they do not have a knowledge of the truth. They have not come to their senses. They have not been granted repentance. When God brings them to repentance, they come to their senses. This is where we get that line in Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. Once you have come to your senses, you can escape the snare of the devil. What is, he says, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. What is the snare of the devil? Uh, it's not like unbelievers are like dying to do righteousness, dying to pursue God and, and honor Jesus. But they can't because their hands are tied behind their back. That's not, that's not what it means to be caught in the snare of the devil. How does the devil snare people? Through deception. Is always deception. That's, that's what Satan does. He's in the business of deceiving. So what he did in the beginning with Adam and Eve, right? He didn't, he didn't hand Eve the apple and say, here, eat this. What did he do? He asked her a question. Did God really say that you can't eat this? He caused her first to question the Lord. He deceived her. That's what he does with you and me today. And we are naive if we think that doesn't still go on. And it's only a history lesson. This language of coming to our senses is... It's reminiscent of Paul's talk about not being drunk, 
Uh, he goes on to, in chapter four to talk about that for being sober-minded. But when, if you think about someone who's drunk, they don't see things the right way. They might be looking at the same thing you are. They might be seeing the, tr the, the truth of the gospel. They might be seeing the words. They're hearing the words, but they do not take it and absorb it and understand it for what it truly is. So God sobers their mind that they can see the truth of the gospel, and then they respond. It's that drunken stupor where your desires are upside down. As an unbeliever, it's not that you want to do right, but your hands are bound by the devil. It's that you don't want to do right. You desire to do evil. You are blind. This is why God must act in your life. Through the truth of his word, we see in Ephesians this idea, and a different example, not that you're drunk, but that you're dead, and he makes you alive. Was it, um, I don't remember if it was Ethan or, or who just gave, who gave the, the analogy recently that oftentimes we think of salvation as being lost at sea, and we're, we're floating in the water, and we're saying, God, help me, and he throws us a life raft, and we, or a life preserver, and we grab onto it, and he brings us to the boat of his eternal kingdom. But the reality is, you're not floating out in the water. You're dead at the bottom of the ocean, and you cannot but reach out and grab that life preserver. God must first make you alive and bring you to the surface. He must make you to see who he is and, for, and his goodness. He brings you to repentance, and as you turn to Jesus, you begin to see his beauty and glory as Lord and King. The weight of guilt falls off your back, and you now desire God above all things. So if God is so essential, if we're, we're talking about the sovereignty of God in saving sinners, if he is so essential in bringing sinners to repentance, what is our role? Is there any place for, for humans, for us, to bring any of this about? Yes, absolutely. God is sovereign over salvation, but he uses people, his children, as agents in, in that work. You and I have a responsibility in reaching unbelievers in what we say and how we act toward them. So we see this in um, verse 24 and 25 particularly. Notice the language here, and then we're gonna, we'll break it down. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then we see God's work. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So there are five ways that Paul lays out here that we are to act toward every, I would say everybody, right? In this context, we're talking about unbelievers and, and evangelism, but I would say this is how we're to act to everybody. Number one, he says, do not be quarrelsome. Do not be quarrelsome, right? What does quarrelsome mean? It means you're looking for a fight. You're, you're happy to take on a challenge of somebody who's wrong. You're, you're, you're ready in the YouTube comments, in the Facebook comments. You're ready to go. What else does he say? He says, uh, don't be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone. So be kind to everybody. There's never a reason to be unkind. That doesn't mean you have to treat everybody like their Mother Teresa. But be kind to everyone. What else does he say? Third thing. Be able to teach. Teach what? 
doesn't just like maybe you're a math teacher and you're like, all right, I'm ready with that quadratic formula. You're, you're going to be, this is going to blow your mind and show you the glory of God. Um, no, be ready to teach. What, what are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus. Be ready to teach about Jesus. Be able to show the truth of the gospel. Number four, patiently endure evil. Patiently enduring evil. A lot of these have overlap in their ideas, right? Not be, I would say don't, not be quarrelsome has to do with, with patiently enduring evil. When somebody wrongs you, you do not seek revenge. When somebody wrongs you, you're, you're not just seeking to bring them to justice. You're enduring their evil against you and not ignoring them, right? Because this is still in the context of winning them to salvation. Your goal is to, to show them the love of Christ. And what did Christ do when he was, when, when, when he was wronged? When, when people spat at him and hit him, what did he do? Right? When, when Jesus was murdered on the cross, what did he do? Well, he rose from the dead. We don't, we don't get that opportunity after three days. We have to wait for, for the Lord on that one. But he didn't come back with a vengeance and say, I'm back, right? What did he do? He continued to minister to people. He continued, he, he healed people who he knew were going to hurt him. Patiently enduring evil. What else does he say? Number five, correct your opponents with gentleness. When somebody is wrong about the gospel, when someone is wrong about the person of God, you're not, you're not there with a heavy hand looking to say, oh, let me show you what's up. You're, or you don't ignore them and say, you don't know anything. You don't know what you're talking about. Correcting them with gentleness. This overlaps with being able to teach. You have to know the truth of the gospel before you can correct the wrongs of the gospel. Correct. So there's five things. Five, what can you do as the Lord's servant? Oh, I didn't, I didn't mention that. Verse 24. This is how we know he's talking about us. He says the Lord's servant. This is those who are believers in Christ. He's not just talking specifically about Timothy. What is the people of God? What do the people of God? How are we to act towards other people? Don't be quarrelsome. Be kind. Be able to teach. You need to know your stuff. And that, it shouldn't be like studying for a test because as you grow in the Lord, as you study his word, as you just have devotional time and you're just praying and you're reading the Bible and you're singing songs, you're, you're, you're growing. Your mind is learning the truth of God and you can't help but share that with other people. I'll tell you that the people who have been most encouraging in my life are not people who have studied to teach a sermon and they, they teach some like epic, awesome life-changing sermon. The people who have influenced my life the most are people who just study the word of God on their own. They just spend time with the Lord and they're like, hey, this is what I saw today. This is what God has shown me today. Or maybe something's going on. There's like a hard situation and it just so happens that they read this verse today. It's like, oh, I didn't read that verse today. It's like, well, did you read any verses today? Maybe, maybe not. But that's, it's, it's not about trying hard to encourage your brothers in Christ. It's about pursuing the Lord, pursuing righteousness and holiness in your own life, and that will encourage others. Now, there are three truths that we get from this command of Paul. 
So because we're oh because we're we're still uh, we're in the context of talking about man's responsibility in share in evangelism, right? We see God is sovereign over bringing repentance, but He uses human means to bring that repentance about. So in three ways: number one, God uses our teaching and testimony of the gospel to bring unbelievers to repentance. So how does God sovereignly use us? We put in place truth. We speak truth to unbelievers. God isn't whispering in the ear of unbelievers, this is the gospel. You should love Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. He's not imprinting that on the soul of unbelievers. How is he doing it? He's using your words. He's using my words. He's using his scripture. They see the truth that we put there. Number two, we must also share truth before unbelievers with confidence. This comes from his phrases that we must be able to teach, and also we're to correct opponents with gentleness. Like I said before, you can't correct something that you don't already know. You have to know it. You have to be in the Word. And as you study, it's not, again, it's not about being a theological scholar. It's not about getting a PhD in the Bible. There are, there are many people who have not had any formal training and have a deeper connection and relationship with the Lord than people who have studied for 15 years and have a doc- multiple doctor's degrees and teach at seminaries. I'm not saying seminaries are bad at all. I'm just saying that what's most important is you developing your relationship with the Lord, and that just comes from daily interaction with him. If we take, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but I only, right? Think, think about um, somebody who has uh, a significant other, whether that's a spouse or a, I, let's use the example of a spouse. That's better because the, the picture of marriage is to point us to the relationship of Jesus Christ in the church, right? Have you guys heard that illustration before? That we are the bride of Christ, right? So think of anybody who's married, right? We, Jeff and Cammie, they're married in the back. You're going to be our illustration tonight. Okay, so maybe you're just in casual conversation with Jeff, right? And it's Friday and you're like, hey, Jeff, um, do you think I could come over for dinner? tomorrow night, just so we could talk about some things, you know, discipleship, that sort of thing. And he's like, I would love to, uh, let's try Monday. And you're like, oh, are you busy tomorrow? And he's like, yeah, uh, Saturday night is when I spend time with my wife. And you're like, oh, that's beautiful. That's great. And he's like, no, 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 you don't get it. That's the only time of the week that I spend time with my wife. Now it doesn't look so great. It's like, what are you doing, man? Like you're only, you're only married for like a part of the week. Uh, and, and, I know there's like busyness and work schedules. I'm not, I'm not trying to point, like point at you guys at all and say like, this is how it is. Sorry. Um, maybe that's something you've got to work out. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just, I'm just saying that if your relationship is built on a once a week engagement, it's not going to be a strong, healthy relationship. If we say I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're saying I'm spending time with him every day. That's, that's how we grow. That's how we build a strong relationship. That's how we allow him to know us. Have you thought about what it takes to know somebody or to, to, to grow a friendship? Right? Think about little kids. Okay? You're, how many of you guys, like when you were a little kid, you asked somebody to be your friend? You're like, hey, can we be friends? I know I did that, but that was, yeah, I didn't, I had to, I had to ask people, I was like, can I be your friend? Um, and the closer you are to somebody, it's usually because you know more about each other. And you don't get to know somebody like by you wanting that more. 
So let's let's say I have let's say Jordan's my friend, uh, and we're let's say we're acquaintances, and I'm like, man, I really want Jordan to be my best friend. I can want that all I want, but I will only be as close to Jordan as he will he will allow me to be, as much as he opens the door for me to see into his life, right? So God says, I want to be your friend, so much so that I died for you, and I have revealed everything that I'm going to in this book, even before you were born. You have everything that you need to know about me here. So if we're lacking in our relationship with the Lord, if we're lacking in in our connection with God, it is not because God is distant. It is because we are pushing him away. So I, I want us at CNC here to be people who are wildebeest, stampeding towards holiness, turning away from sin, not afraid of seeming legalistic and seeming like we're try-hard spiritualists, but we're just looking to Jesus and we're pointing each other in that way. There's a third point here. Uh, It's uh, most important above all of these things, being able to teach, not being quarrelsome, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents. Um... These are spiritual qualities that we must have. They're not just things that we do. So our our character matters. So when he says, don't be quarrelsome, he's not just saying in specific instances, don't get in fights. He's saying, don't be a quarrelsome person. Your personality should not be known as someone who's contentious. Right? Have a backbone. Stand for the truth. He's not saying, be a jellyfish and let people say whatever they want. He's saying, be able to correct them, but do it with gentleness. Because the ultimate goal is not for you to be right. It is because maybe God will grant repentance. They will come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. The purpose of our interaction with other people is that we would point them to Christ, whether they're believers or not. Patiently endure evil. Forgive those who have wronged you. Don't look for revenge. Correct with gentleness, patience, and kindness. So that's that's our idea tonight from from this passage that's what i want you to see is that god does have a specific calling for your life it's not found in shaking an eight ball it's not found in asking somebody else or your your maybe you have a school counselor and they're like oh you're studying this major this is what you should do uh, it's not found in just praying and and hoping that god will one day show you pray by all means but it starts with this Pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ by fleeing from sin and running towards his righteousness. We sang a line tonight that I, I think is really helpful in Lord, I Need You. It's um, uh, holiness is Christ in me. All right. Uh, we, another line from this from Cornerstone where we say faultless stand before the throne. It's not, it's not because I am faultless. It's not because I've pursued righteousness hard enough. It's because Christ was righteous. He was peaceful. He was loving. He was all these things that Paul is telling us to be. And we're to be that because Christ is in us. When the Lord looks at us, he doesn't see us in our sin and our guilt. He sees his son, Jesus Christ. So that's, that's what we're pursuing. If you, if you want to know your calling in life, Start by pursuing holiness, and then the Lord will take it from there. That's hard. It's really hard to do. I think, I think we tend to like skip that. We're like, okay, 
Like maybe if I do what God wants me to do, like if I, if I pick the right career, if I go to the right school, if I study the right major, if I move to the right place, then God will start to show me. He'll start to work in my life and make me more Christ-like. It doesn't work that way. It says, pursue Christ, be like him, and God is going to do the rest. That's where we just trust him. So that's what we have uh, tonight. Uh, whether you are an unbeliever, the Lord is calling you to repentance. He's calling you to change your mind, to come to your senses and see that there's forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, he's saying, come to your senses. Don't treat evangelism as a weapon Don't or don't think of it as something that other people do. You evangelize, you share the gospel, you take part in God's sovereign plan simply by pursuing holiness, being kind, knowing the truth so that you can correct with gentleness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, Paul's ministry. We thank you for saving him and Timothy and giving Timothy this church in Ephesus that was struggling with false doctrine. That though they didn't know it, you would use this book, this letter in our life, that we can learn and see what it means to, to be a Christian. We can see this is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. We are not strong enough or good enough to pursue holiness on our own, to be like you on our own. We thank you first that you've given us forgiveness in your son Christ. And in so doing, you've given us your Holy Spirit by which you give us the strength. You give us the power. You've also given us one another. Lord, would we see each other as a gift from you? to encourage us and to be encouraged by us. We ask that you would save sinners, Lord, that you would bring them to repentance. We trust that you do, as your word says, and as we've seen in our own lives. We thank you and we love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.